We have a trade relation for $250 billion a year. You know, we Canadians, we read a lot of your magazines and papers. And there is virtually nothing about Canada in newspaper. So it's a sign that we have no problem. <laughs> you know, we read about everything when you read Time magazine and Newsweek, and nobody knows where is Canada sometimes in these magazines. <laughs> so it's a sign that we manage to resolve our problems when we take them one by one. And I think that it is one of the great stories in the world that two countries like United States and Canada can work together like that and gave a great example to the world. Welcome to the Rational National Podcast. I am one of your hosts, David, David Dole. You know me from the uh, YouTube channel. And I'm here joined by Mary. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. Um, so this is the new podcast. I don't have a proper name for it yet. I'm not sure if we'll ever get a proper name. Uh, but I will say that these episodes will have more of a focused uh, take in terms of uh, the topics that we're going to address. We're not necessarily going to be going um, on what's happening in the news the past week or, you know, the usual. Uh, though sometimes maybe we will. But today, the focus is actually going to be on NAFTA and trade in general. So, uh, Mary, give us a, a little breakdown of what to expect. Yeah, so uh, this past Canada Day, uh, the trade agreement, uh, so NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA, came into effect um, as sort of an update to to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, and we look at the uh, impact of NAFTA, and we just look at it in terms of, like, at least this is just a Canadian perspective. Um, the Canadian government describes NAFTA as one of economic growth um, and middle-class job creation both here in Canada and across North America. It is a platform where companies from Canada, the United States, and Mexico uh, make things together rather than simply sell things to each other. Um, it has raised the standard of living for the people of all three countries. So we're going to look at uh, these claims made by the Canadian government website. And this is pretty much the, uh, these are the talking points that all NAFTA or free trade enthusiasts like to, to use. Yeah, we're going to refute these claims. So first, we'll look at the conditions that created NAFTA from the neoliberal economics behind the joint Reagan-Mulroney administrations, the divisive 1988 free trade election, and the northern exploitation of the Mexican debt crisis, Next, we'll go through some of the most devastating policies that were executed because of the deal. And lastly, we'll look at its impact today, from Trump to what its chief architects, from Mulroney to Chrétien, have to say today. Ultimately, NAFTA has set the standard for international trade, and we've seen these discussions continue under, you know, obviously the update to, to NAFTA, but also under TPP and other trade agreements, where um, often the similar approach is... Uh, that was taken to NAFTA is taken to these other trade deals. So we're going to talk about the origins of NAFTA. So how did NAFTA come about? Um, what we often give uh, Bill Clinton and Jean Chrétien, uh, these pro-corporate liberals, Democrats, whatever you want to call them, all the credit. Uh, while they were the ones that signed it in 1994, it was really first, this concept of this continental trade was first brought into the public sphere in 1979 when Reagan announced his presidency. We live on a continent 
whose three countries possess the assets to make it the strongest, most prosperous, and self-sufficient area on Earth. Within the borders of this North American continent are the food, resources, technology, and undeveloped territory which properly managed could dramatically improve the quality of life of all its inhabitants. It's no accident that this unmatched potential for progress and prosperity exists in three countries with such long-standing heritages of free government, and so a developing closeness among Canada, Mexico, and the United States, a North American accord would permit achievement of that potential in each country beyond that which I believe any of us, strong as we are, could accomplish in the presence or the absence, I should say, of such cooperation. This was also at a time when tensions with the Soviet Union were used as a political weapon. But Reagan couldn't get both Pierre Trudeau and Mexican President Portillo on board. But with Brian Mulroney as prime minister, there was a chance for a Canada-U.S. free trade agreement. The 1988 election was described as the free trade election. This is NDP leader Ed Broadbent, who opposed the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement, discussing this in the 1988 debate. End of quote. Now, I could give you a half a dozen leading businessmen and women who have said this deal affects our social programs, it affects regional development policy, it affects unemployment insurance. It does all of these things to radically change Canadian life. We didn't build up this country, our forefathers, for decades before us with better social programs, better regional development, control of our own energy to allow Mr. Moroni and this, this government to sell it all out. That's what's wrong with the deal. You can't tinker with this deal. You've got to scrap it. You've got to get rid of it and then go back to building sensible trade relations strictly on trade with the United States and with other countries in the world and that's what we would do. And then here we have Liberal John Turner and Brian Mulroney getting to a spat on this issue. I happen to believe that you've sold us out. I happen to believe that once you... Mr. And Turner, just, 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 just one second. Second. Once any you nation, do not, you do not have a monopoly what? on patriotism. What? What? And I resent what? the fact that your implication that only you are a Canadian. I, I want to tell you that I come from a Canadian once, family and once, I love Canada. Once, and that's any, why I did it, to promote prosperity. Country, and don't you impugn my motives. Once Don't a country you my yields or anyone else's. Once a country yields its its energy. We have not Once done Once a it. country yields its agriculture. Wrong Once again. a country opens itself up to a subsidy war with the United States Wrong on again. terms of definition, then the political ability you, of this country to sustain the influence of the United States to remain as an Mr. independent nation, that Mr. is lost Turner, forever. Mr. And that's Turner, the issue of this election. Mr. Sir. Turner, I today, sir, as a Canadian, believe genuinely in what I am doing, I believe it is right for Canada. I believe that in my own modest way, I am nation building because I believe this benefits Canada and I love Canada. We built a country, east and west and north, we built it on an infrastructure that deliberately resisted the continental pressure of the United States. For 120 years we've done it. With one signature of a pen, you've reversed that thrown us into the north-south influence of the United States With a and will reduce us, will reduce us, I'm sure, to a colony of the United States we because when the economic levers go, the political independence is sure to follow. Mr. Turner, with a document that's cancelable on six months' notice, be serious. Look, be can serious. Cancelable. You're talking about our relationship with the United States. Once that a commercial docu document that's cancelable that on six months' notice. Commercial document. That, that is what document it is. relates it is a to treaty. It relates to every facet of our life. It it's is far more treaty. important Mr. to us than it is to the United States. Sir. 
Far please more be, important. Please be serious. Well, I am serious. I've never been more serious yeah, in my life. Please. Okay, so that was an interesting exchange. Um, when it came to this election, uh, despite all the, black, the backlash that the conservatives uh, received from both the NDP and the liberals, they still managed to win a majority government. Um, and this kind of makes me wonder, despite both parties being opposed to this issue, what could have been done to get Canadians to oppose free trade? Or like, is this even something we can get Canadians to oppose today or, or come to some kind of different opinion or differing view? Well, there has to be a, an education on the impact of, uh, of free trade. And also, while there's an education, there has to be an education of the alternative, being fair trade, and how there should be workers-centered in these agreements. So to create any sort of opposition, I mean, the biggest issue is, is that a topic like this is just not all that interesting to a lot of people. And it could be really easy to ignore unless you feel the direct impact, unless you were a worker or your father or, or someone in your family was a worker uh, that was impacted by a free trade agreement like this. It can be tough for people to really care or to find the desire to even get educated on the topic. So that's always going to be a constant battle, I think, when it comes to um, uh, these sorts of issues. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think we were kind of like discussing this a little bit earlier, but I think when it comes to the concept of trade, think about messaging like like the whole anti-corruption messaging that uh, is that is really resonant with people. Um, Donald Trump's election was like largely a trade. It was definitely done in a racist way. So it was done in a way to. Um, to really highlight this issue. And I think the left needs to, to start getting serious about this. I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about this, but um, uh, like if you, if you listen to like Jean Chrétien's opening statement, um, like we're aware as Canadians, at least, we're very aware of what's going on in, in American politics. Like we're aware, we read their papers, we read what's going on, um, but somehow, like trade gets glossed over, like, and John Crichton kind of like highlights that. But we really need to start being serious about trade, and we need to look at all of the details on on these negotiations. Um, I also think that like unions need to start building coalitions with other unions, um, and start really addressing the poor labor standards, which they do. But I think there needs to be a focus on like talking about like the southern states. Um, like during this time, there was a lot of discussion about. Uh, Canadians losing um, bargaining power because in the United States, not just like Mexico, not just a third world country, in the southern southern regions of the United States, like Georgia and sort of that like Bible Belt area, we were going to lose a lot of, um, uh, like we, we were going to lose a lot because of those states have like really loose um, regulations. And we need to start start building coalitions with with uh with organizations which does happen but i think i think we need to start framing things like that but uh i think we need to i think we need to look at this ultimately as something that just isn't about trade it's i think it is within the realm of that idea of anti-corruption or anti-corporation which is so resonant with people but we need to be able to bring something to the table that isn't just like oh we're anti-corporation we're pro-workers and we're pro-workers rights in various parts of the world. Yeah, and attaching, I think the, the other important piece of this is 
attaching the decline of unionization to the overall impact on all workers. Because a lot of people feel like, oh, this is an issue of unions, this is an issue of, of you know, uh, these massive corporations, it has no impact on me personally. When in reality, you look at the decline of unionization, you, you look at the decline um, overall in, in labor rights, it is directly correlated with workers overall. And not just people that are in unions, but because unions tend to have a, a higher standard and it holds other companies to that standard as they're afraid of course of losing workers to unions to to unionized workplaces if they don't uh, maintain some similar standard that those unions have so being able to tie the conversation into that as well so that people understand there is a direct impact on your life uh if you don't take these these trade deals or or, or the focus of these deals aren't on labor that it will have a direct impact on your life even if you don't feel like initially that it involves you. The reality is that it does. Yeah, and I think I think like just your regular content, it's so hev- heavily focused on America. And I think we kind of, whether you're in a country like Canada, or you're in a country like Canada, we need to start looking at these things beyond our own borders. Um, like like when you talk about the Stop, Stop Bezos Act, right? When you talk about something that it's, it's it's not necessarily a policy that's going to affect you as a Canadian directly right away, but that $15 minimum wage is definitely going to, I don't know, like trickle up. I hate that word, but like it's, it's, it's going to affect. <laughs> well, trickle up makes more sense than trickle down. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to affect our, like our workers in Canada. So yes, we want workers in other countries to have better labor standards or better wages and it doesn't have to be just through like unions obviously we want to promote unions but like just workers wanting to have better rights well we saw with the umca which i i imagine we'll get to um but it yeah we'll get to we'll get to the, okay that. We'll but yeah it increased essentially before just to finish the point it, it increased labor standards for for mexico which is good for everybody overall but um do you want to get to ross perot now so what's going on between these two, between Ed Broadbent and John Turner and Mulroney between these discussions? That was just trade negotiations between Canada and the United States. So Canada was really interested in this idea because they knew that, oh, we're going to be affected by trade. Um, but the American public, this wasn't something they were really engaged in. Um, but they started getting engaged with this continental trade um, issue when Mexico uh, was involved. And here we have, uh, yeah, Ross Perot um, talking about NAFTA. We have got to stop sending jobs overseas. To those of you in the audience who are business people, pretty simple. If you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for factory workers, and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25, that's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor. Have no health care. That's the most expensive single element making a car. Have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement. And you don't care about anything but making money. There will be a giant sucking sound going south. So we, if, if the people send me to Washington, the first thing I'll do is study that 2,000-page agreement and make sure it's a two-way street. I, one last point here. I've called, I decided I was dumb and didn't understand it, so I called the who's who of the folks who've been around it, 
And I said, why won't everybody go south? They said, we'll be disruptive. I said, for how long? I finally got them up for 12 to 15 years. And I said, well, how does it stop being disruptive? And that is when their jobs come up from a dollar an hour to $6 an hour and ours go down to $6 an hour, then it's leveled again. But in the meantime, you've wrecked the country with these kinds of deals. And I just want to make a point um, with what was happening in Mexico. Mexico was dealing with a, a debt crisis that was going on in the early 80s. Um, and with the IMF and the World Bank swooping in, they really pressured Mexico to open up its nationalist economy. So that's why trade negotiations became real at this this time in the early 90s. So free trade is based on the concept of the most favored nation principle, equal treatment of all countries regarding tariffs, immunities, and other privileges. Under NAFTA, Automobiles required 62.5% of materials to be manufactured in North America to qualify for zero tariffs. Canada lost 26% of their auto industry jobs. Mexico's numbers uh, or number quadrupled, and they produced 1.5 million more cars annually. Another sort of major issue that uh, gets talked about with NAFTA is the Chapter 11 Investor State Dispute Mechanism. Uh, so this allowed foreign investors to sue countries for compensation when they felt that they were being treated unfairly. Um, so they could bypass domestic courts, essentially. And instead of using private international tribunals, they would use economic experts. Um, and I say that in quotations. Um, unions do not have the same rights to challenge the government decisions um, as Chapter 11 directly protected private investors. And Canada has been sued so many times. They were sued over twice as many times as Mexico and the United States combined, um, costing Canadian taxpayers $314 million in legal fees. Um, and just to see like how how biased this was like the u.s never lost an investor state case so it just goes to show you like who really benefited and it wasn't americans it was american corporations yeah it's important to make that that distinction um now we have a little clip here yeah so this is a, a clip with um the late michael brooks and um uh, destiny and they debate this issue of trade and sort of dispute mechanisms and i thought it was really interesting um to sort of look at this and and how how uh trade um is sort of justified michael brooks pretty much like debunks this issue really easily yeah and this is from uh, just so people know from uh, august 2019 all of the agreements from nafta to the korea trade agreement they have all had and democratic presidents have made a lot of noise about side let's just fix, let's just say environmental side agreements, right? And, I, and, the, so, and we know about the investor dispute mechanism. Sometimes it goes the corporation's way, mostly it does, sometimes it doesn't. But we know that in these agreements, there actually is international adjudication for when a company says, I'm being treated unfairly, they can go to do a bureaucratic process, right? We yep. agree with that, right? Yeah, the ISTS, yeah. How many environmental cases have been brought up underneath side agreements in any of these trade agreements in the last couple of decades? What do you mean by side agreements? Like ISDS arbitrating? So just the same way that TPP, it specifically has a side agreement inside the bill, but they used to be called side agreements, but it's functionally the same thing. It's the, it's the part that says, here are all this nice things we'll do with to the environment. How many 
enforceable actions have been brought into any of these trade agreements that are the same as TPP, but they're written for, say, Korea or mm-hmm. Central America or CAFTA. Actually, I don't think CAFTA didn't have a side one. How many, I don't think CAFTA had a side one. I need to double check that. How many of them had environmental enforcement mechanisms that were brought to bear in those cases? When you How say many? an environmental enforcement mechanism, do you mean like a specific part of the agreement that says that like if you violate this provision? Like so if, if in these agreements, and just as with some of the market stuff, mm-hmm. countries violate these things all the time or other countries think they're violating these things all the time. Mm-hmm. There's a really important answer and a really yeah. obvious one you're not giving me, okay. which is that none. There has been zero environmental enforcement under any of these agreements and i just want to be really clear okay and i'm not saying you're doing this intentionally obviously but that is not what these agreements say that's pretty much michael brooks really laying down how tpp but like also nafta and just kind of these dispute mechanisms really aren't effective in in dealing with like a country's national sovereignty Um, when it comes to economics or environmental standards. Um, And one of the largest trade disputes under NAFTA was the softwood lumber industry. Um, U.S. lumber companies complained about how low the Canadian stumpage rates were, arguing Canada had an unfair advantage. Interestingly enough, that's kind of what comparative advantage is and like this concept libertarians use all the time. But um, they did have this comparative advantage due to its natural resources and Western provinces. And this created a trade surplus in the forestry industry. So uh, despite lobbying and awareness campaigns by many union organizations like Unifor, uh, which is Canada's largest private sector union, American corporations still used their... uh, their their strength to better to batter uh, Canadian competitors and uh, the 2006 uh, settlement ultimately sided with American businesses uh, this finally resulted in a massive loss of 9,494 direct and indirect Canadian jobs between 2004 and 2009. So that essentially really refutes one of the main points um, that the Canadian government likes to sort of espouse when it comes to NAFTA. And and here we even have Jean Chrétien admitting how NAFTA failed on softwood lumber. The other reality, too, is all the rules you have, no, the Americans don't respect them. When I, when I was there, we, we took them to court on softwood lumber many times. We won all the time, and they just said, so what? Mm. And today, you know, why is he still taxing aluminum and steel? That's nothing to do with NAFTA. You know why? It's because they cut the taxes for the rich and they need money. Yep. <laughs> now, it is funny to see Jean Chrétien... Um, be very aware of this. Uh, you know, you've done a lot more research into into him than, than I have, but he seems to be somebody who who has a great handle on things and understands the realities of American interests and of corporate interests and their power and their power over Canada. Um, yet, I guess my question: NAFTA. Why did he go along? Why was he so down for NAFTA? Uh, well, I imagine it was largely because he wanted to build a, a positive relationship with um, uh, Clinton, uh, with 
with uh, when he was in power. Um, I think like the liberals were trending towards this this ultimate ultimate kind of like neoliberal free trade um, vision that that was really brought up with with people like Mulroney and Reagan like this is this new era this sort of like when we talk about like third way like Jean Chrétien is sort of part of this um new era of third way liberals and um like but still in keeping with the liberal tradition but he was also it's very interesting to see him like admit how wrong he was here um admit how how this failed and he's a very likable person when he has this uh, self-reflection perspective and he's he's open and honest about uh you know what went wrong um or what he did wrong or or, or not even necessarily even just that but just his analysis of of the different power dynamics and it's accurate what he is saying it's just funny to see somebody who is so correct in his assessment not exactly govern the way to be able to um you know, push back or or fight for what he at least appears to be rhetorically um, more interested in, which is not the interests of the wealthy, not the interests of big corporations, yet in terms of him as a liberal prime minister. Yeah, well, we see how these 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 neoliberal policies get sold, like Brian Mulroney saying how he's this Canadian, he, he's for nation building and, and Canada and and uh, the strength of Canada and all that like BS. Um, and, and this kind of idea gets sold to the Canadians like, oh yeah, this is a great way to uh, you know, build up Canadian businesses and that kind of like BS gets sold. But then ultimately like those that are in power, the corporations in power, once they have reached a certain level of power and influence and government influence and you know, influence in their own, in their own uh, governments, like in the American government or in the Canadian governments, they can pretty much do whatever they want. And, and I think we have to stop being naive about what these policies are, but the liberals have always been naive on these issues. And so, I mean, the, the real answer or the real question is, how can we make this something that people care about? How can trade be less boring? and more interesting (laughs) and i mean we see how donald trump has you know used racism and xenophobia to uh put a light on trade and and get people on his side to make people think that he is fighting for them but he's able to use that sort of that that cultural divisiveness or i mean essentially just racism uh and xenophobia that appeals to to many uh people uh at least in the u.s um he's able to use that as a a tactic not even I'm not even sure if it's conscious, but that's what he does. Uh, so, how can we grow the message and and effectively uh, counter that Donald Trump message and and bring people into this perspective? I mean, we've discussed this, I guess, throughout. Is there needs to be this focus on 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 workers and labor rights and understanding that there's this connection mm-hmm. between all of us, yeah. and it's not just those you know individuals who were directly impacted by you know jobs moving uh, away so we have to be able to bring that that into the the discussion when it comes to um uh trade well i think you know we kind of had the answer obviously it didn't work out um due to other external factors and sort of things we couldn't really be in control of but it was you know people like bernie sanders they have this this pro-worker message like he's the anti-trump but trump basically like plagiarized his whole like 
his whole like his his style of like anti corporations like that that was his whole whole thing in 2016. Um, so I think we definitely need to lean into that. But I also think like there needs to be a lot of sort of re-education on this issue. Um, when we, we look at, at other countries in the world and like just sort of like otherize other countries. And I think uh, we need to sort of learn about what other countries did um, to sort of, I don't want to, I don't want to say the word like protect themselves because I think, I think we we can I don't want to say like lean into protectionism but um the like developing countries have used uh like protectionist laws like when they were in sort of a state of development have used protectionism and I don't want to say like oh we need to like close our borders or like be nationalistic that's not what I'm saying whatsoever um but when we when you're a nation in decline or your workers or you're like a certain sector of your industry is in decline and um, you need to sort of start thinking about, I don't want to say protectionism, but you need to start thinking about nationalizing industries in Canada and like kind of possibly spreading this message. And I don't know how we can do it, but like I just think of a country like uh, South Korea and it's kind of like this amazing country that libertarians and the right wing love to like reference as this like wonderful place of like free markets and capitalism in comparison to like North Korea like you see that kind of like dichotomy today but when they were I guess like developing and and uh, you know trying to like build up their economy they invested a lot in their infrastructure and what they did was they they decided they wanted to implement what's called like ISI um, uh, so this is like import substitution, substitution industrialization. industrialization. Yeah. I, I always forget that. Um, but it's it's basically this idea that you you subsidize your own country, like you basically national, like it's it's very nationalistic. Like you subsidize your country um, to manufacture goods so that you can build its own local economy. Yes. And and you do that by you know sort of closing off your closing off like trade from other areas and really building yourself up as a country. And that's what developing countries really need to do or should do if they want to like create their own national economies. And once they have products uh, that they can export, then they start exporting them. And that's yeah. kind of what South and Korea did. That's an important and a point. A lot of Asian tiger countries in sort of the Cold War era. That's an important point to make because it's it's not isolationist because it is ultimately beneficial to the rest of the world. But in order to be a country that benefits humanity as a whole, there has still has to be that initial investment into that country and into the people that are there and into industries there to be able to become a country that is no longer just a developing nation, but one that is, uh, is able to provide and, and benefit the rest of the world. This discussion about protectionism, I mean, it, it really, it all depends on what state you are as a country. Are, are you... Or what state that industry is in, like, yeah. that you're trying to develop or trying to build up. Mm -hmm. So there has to be, you know, time given and, and leeway and, and understanding that, you know, to be quote-unquote protectionist in certain industries at certain times does make sense for particular countries. And understanding that with that investment, eventually that investment does pay off, not just for that country, but also for, you know, the world as a whole. So, you know, the, the issue that we always have on the left here with, with these discussions is that 
that there, there's so much nuance and there really is so much to be able to wade through. You can't put these sorts of, you know, discussions in a slogan. I mean, it, it requires uh, some engagement and it requires some knowledge about about the steps that are taken and about how that benefits us. And it's yeah. it's whereas the right wing, you know, Donald Trump can just be racist and xenophobic and he's able to get support that way. It's not we don't have any quick uh, fixes or, or any any slogans, I should say, to really appeal to people um, on that on that, you know, base yeah. uh, it level that the way tr the way Trump does. Yeah. And for the record, like Trump isn't necessarily like implementing isi and it, sh it shouldn't just be like isi or free trade like you need to understand like where one is more valuable than the other and when you can start thinking about it like i, I guess we should just, just talk about like usmca and kind of what this is now so sure um i'll just kind of go over a bit about that um but so trump was like really opposed to nafta that's kind of what he ran his election on however um, the USMCA isn't much of a, a difference um, to what the actual policy was. Like there's some, there's some changing changes, especially when it comes to like Canadian dairy, um, which actually doesn't really help Canadian dairy. Um, like the America Americans have more access to the Canadian market, um, which is difficult if you're like a Canadian company and you have higher regulations in Canada versus you know you're an American company and you have like lower lower regulations so when you're trying to sell these two products on like equal footing the 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 cost for the consumer is going to be better when it comes to like the american product um but one one good thing that happened um chapter 11 was eliminated um for canada um but it still exists between the united states and mexico so kind of interesting that debate between like michael brooks and um destiny like that dispute mechanism was ultimately eliminated um but it still exists in mexico but it mainly it did have a lot of effect on canadian um, businesses um there uh, another benefit was uh what they did implement was a minimum wage of 16 dollars an hour for auto workers in mexico so so rather than like paying workers like three bucks an hour i don't know how much they were paying them but just like yeah it's also still a very specific it's like a singular industry yes um and so it's while it is of course beneficial uh it is a very specific win um for a certain industry for mexico and uh, i mean ultimately it, it it has benefits across the board um so it doesn't lower the standards of, of everyone else in that in that at least in that industry uh but yeah, I mean, there was also, when I covered this, I remember a, a bit, I don't remember the specifics, but there was something about uh, pharmaceuticals, and I believe there was a, uh, uh, it extended copyright uh, on specific pharmaceuticals so that it would be harder to create generic versions of those drugs, um, and that affects Canada, mm -hmm. so uh, that was a negative in that sense, as it, it continues to to keep that the power in the hands of big pharma, um, which in turn would keep the cost of these pharmaceuticals higher than they would be otherwise if they had generic versions of those drugs. So there was that downside to it as well. I mean, ultimately, it was there were some trade-offs, some pluses. I don't think there was much of a difference in, in really yeah, the approach. It, exactly. The structural free trade doctrine still 
still exist and if anything like it just sort of like solidified like what NAFTA is is like this sort of international standard is like the way that trade is to be carried going forward whether it's a Republican or a Democrat Um, and you know we're seeing different trade agreements like the TPP, CETA um, but like of course union leaders continue to argue argue against these trade deals um, as they're largely undemocratic like these workers do not get consulted during these trade negotiations or like they may they may get consulted maybe on the Canadian side I imagine like as sort of some some like gesture but like these are just these trade these trade uh deals are really just ways to funnel manufacturing jobs to lower wage countries and like that's just to to the benefit of corporations um and it really prevents the ability for unions to collectively bargain and organize um because of these increased global divisions of labor. So that same exact structure is is here with NAFTA 2.0. Yep. All right. I think we've uh, touched on what we can with trade today. Uh, that was that was great. Yeah. Oh, and I just I just want to say something, and I think it's I I don't want to like not say this because I think it's it's really important to to say being critical of NAFTA is in no way of being anti-immigrant. And I think a lot of people sort of link, and it's, it's kind of disgusting how people link this idea of like, like free trade with immigration. And in fact, they're, they're not. Like, and, and it's sort of like the, yeah. this libertarian view that like free trade and immigration. And as somebody that is very pro-immigration, um, Canada needs immigrants, Canada you know, benefits with with its multicultural society. Um, I think, like, the population arguments are stupid, but, like, ultimately we are not able to, like, keep our growth of population without immigrants. But even just disregarding that, like, there is, we need to care about humanity and we need to care about, you know, these countries that the global north has exploited. Like, I'm just, like, my mom is from a third world country. She came from the Philippines and immigrated here um to to live a better life um and and I just wanted just to say that because I I hear this argument all the time that like free trade and immigration like the free flowing of like people and products are like the same thing and it it really which which also kind of which also kind of shows you that their approach to people to people in general when they are equating the free flow of people with products. I mean, that's <laughs> it. Really, is just this capitalist view of uh, of of everything. Um, so yeah, of course, the two are not connected. And, and often, I mean, it's really just used. I would think for the most part by people that are being dishonest. Um, liberals, neoliberals that are giving you this dishonest approach and and are are basically trying to goad you into into having to accept the realities in their mind the realities of well you have to be for free trade or else you're racist or else you're xenophobic um so it doesn't really make sense to connect the two uh, at all yeah it's it's weird how it's like free trade and immigration or protectionism and like like racism and xenophobia it's like these two yeah, it's so it's ridiculous not, they're not like two different so- like they're they're not they're not related like they're you can have you can be be somebody that is an advocate for fair trade or like trade policies that benefit developing countries and help your own country and you can have like uh, 
like be supportive of protectionist policies. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're anti-immigrant. And on the flip side, it means that we need to really advocate, you know, that we sh- like there is a responsibility of at least a country like Canada that that basically benefits from its standing as this north northwestern you know economic power it's not as powerful as the united states but we've benefited from workers around the world from like chinese workers to um immigrant labor like we there's so many there's so many um benefits that canada's has had and and just its treatment of immigrants it, it does have a long history i actually think we should do a, a podcast on that because i think that would be really interesting all right maybe Canada that's immigration maybe that's for next time um all right mary thank you for uh joining me for this very first podcast uh though i've done many podcasts but this is a, a dedicated audio podcast uh for the rational national so uh let us know what you think um and uh, we will see uh, in the future what kind of topics we will uh, will touch on. And maybe, you know, some days, some some weeks will be a little different where we are going a little more on, on what's happening, uh, you know, in that past week or so. But uh, I like having these these frame discussions around sp- specific topics. It's, it's, it's fun. Yeah. So uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. When you have rational national priorities, 